Good morning. Wow, that's loud. Hello. I'll have to whisper for a minute. Uh, my name's Darren. Good to be with you. I'm speaking this morning. Um, I just love the honesty of kids because some of those things I reckon we would say when asked why we work um, for the money or to boss someone around. That's a, uh, a common response, but um, it's been good this morning on Workplace Sunday already to have Lawson share on the theme that, that Jesus brings to work and to hear the kids talk about work, so that's fantastic. And to see all the things that people have brought for Workplace Sunday, we've got all sorts of uh, helpful items, dangerous items, all sorts of things over here from people's work. So come and have a look afterwards. Um, just don't touch the nail gun. Apparently, that, that could be. Even those that know how to use it shoot themselves in the hand. So uh, a word of caution there. So let me just briefly mention, because this ties into the next gen um, advertisement, I guess you'd call it. But uh, Engage Work Faith is where I work two days a week with the team there and our, our uh, workplace is a Christian workplace with a focus on um, spreading the message of work with its um, elements from the Bible, what the Christian perspective on work is. And we actually come along to Next Gen and we do a, a session, I think it's once per year. Um, Craig's been here a few times, my boss, and, and talked to the Next Geners. Um, so what we do is we want to bring uh, the spheres of work and faith together. Because sometimes there's a temptation when you get to work to leave your faith at the door because it's a testing place, it's a place where you spend a lot of time. So the way that we help people in the workplace is we want to engage Christians in prayer and we do that through um, two or more groups, we call them, where people gather in lunch break or before work and, and pray together for their work and for their workmates and their workplace. We do it through events and I had a slide to show you but you can't see it so you have to go to the website going on so that we can be challenged, be open with it. Pray you give me clarity as I think and speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to speak to you this morning from the letter of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible and you want to flick there to 1 Peter, I'm going to be spending a bit of time diving around in it. So try and keep up. There are a number of texts that I jump back and forth to. So if you want to, I was going to put them on screen, but if you want to, I can email you the outline later to make sure that I'm on the right track. That's a good thing to do, make sure the speaker's using the the Bible wisely, but also for your own benefit to check it out later and I'll try and spell it out as we go. But the, the key text I thought that was really interesting, especially in, um, I've got the NIV version here and it says, it translates 1 Peter 2 verse 12 as a key text this morning this way, live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Again, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So I've entitled this morning's message, Living the Good Life. Live such good lives. There are a lot of competing ideas for what the good life is. Everyone's got an opinion. You don't have to look far to find one. There's a few that I've come across recently. For some reason, social media recommended to me a, an ex-Marine called David Goggins. I don't know if you've met him. He does swear a bit, so we'll put that out there. But he's an ex-Marine and his mantra is, never negotiate with yourself. That's one of the things he says. Um, or face your fears. So he's very much about you 
be working hard to make sure you can be the best person you can be and live your best life in that way. One of his biggest fears is the fear of water. In the video I saw of him, he ties his hands behind his back, has someone tie him up on the jetty and he rolls into the water and then he, and then he swims off like with his hands and legs tied and, and that's his approach to life. If you want to live a good life, you need to face your fear and stop negotiating with yourself. That's David Goggins' take on life. Another take on living a good life, and it's interesting, Jonathan Fields is an author and he wrote a book called How to Live a Good Life. That sounds like the letter from Peter here, doesn't it? How to Live a Good Life. Jonathan Fields says there are three buckets in your life, is what he calls them. There's three buckets. There's the vitality bucket, the connection bucket, and the contribution bucket. The vitality bucket is your health, your physical health and your mental health. The connection bucket is your relationships. You need those to thrive as well. And the last one is the contribution bucket. That's where you give me some money. No, it's not. That is where you contribute something to society. You need to have that outlet in your life as well. These are all really good ideas, aren't they? And some of what David has said is really good as well. Sometimes we need to kick ourselves in the pants and just get going on a Monday morning. But what Jonathan says is there's some laws that you need to know about the buckets. And one of the laws is that the buckets always leak. And you have to go around topping up the bucket one after the other. The other another law that he has, there's three laws of them. The second one he has is um, the most empty bucket will drag the other buckets down. So if you've got one that's really lagging, like your health, then you can't enjoy your relationships as well as you could. Or if your health is dragging you down then you can't contribute to society uh, or your, your friend group or whatever it is in a meaningful way and fulfil your purpose. So we have these two competing ideas and there's many more, I'm sure you have some come to mind, about what it means to live the good life. Everyone's got an opinion on it. And the question is asked is, how do these things hold up under the scrutiny of life? How do these ha- things happen when the, the going gets tough? In the case of the buckets... What if you have a permanent disability? How can you properly fill your health bucket? What if you have broken relationships and you're cut off and isolated? How can you fill your connection bucket sufficiently and not have them drag the others down? What if you're not sure how to contribute and find purpose in giving? What will happen to life then? So there's often some very practical advice, but there's some bigger foundational issues that must be addressed here. Living the good life must sit on a good foundation for those tough times as well. This letter that Peter writes, you'll notice at the very start, if you were to have a look, I encourage you to read the whole letter later, it's only a short letter. But Paul writes in verse 1 to God's elect, so he's writing to God's people, exiles scattered throughout these various provinces. And what we find as we go through is that these people are not living what would be considered an Instagram-worthy best life. They're a minority group in a society that does not think Christians are very smart at all. They're oppressed and persecuted in many situations. And yet Paul says you can live such good lives, you can live the good life. So it's worth examining the foundation for which Peter, if I said Paul, I apologise, for which Peter says we can live this good life. And it raises some questions from this text that we've just picked out smack bang in the middle of the book. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, there's that competition and opposition, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And questions come up, don't they? 
what is this good life then? Why would I live this good life if it doesn't guarantee just good times? And how do I go about practically living the good life, especially taking it through the door of the workplace? So let's address those questions in order. The what, the why and the how. What is the good life? Well, let's let Peter speak for himself and in 1 Peter 1, 3, so if you flick back a page, if you're in a physical Bible, 1 Peter 1, 3, we get some answers to the question straight up. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Here is our first clue. There are many clues here. What I want to focus on is, unlike what David Goggins would tell you, this is something you cannot enter into yourself. This life of new hope, it's called, is something you cannot enter into yourself. What you're going to notice as you read through this letter, and I encourage you to do so, is many of the action words are things that are done for you. And we see that already here in this one verse. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were to jump through, you would see this word born again in verse 23. That idea of birth comes up yet again. And I don't know if you remember your birth, probably not, but you didn't have a lot of say in how it took place, did you? You just showed up and everyone else did the work, let's be honest. Um, thanks to our mums and our doctors. Um, so it's the idea you can't do the new birth that's talked about here into this living hope. It's something that's done on your behalf. There's another word I want you to pick up here to show that this new life, this new hope is enacted for you. Look in 117, you'll see another word, which is an interesting word here, if I've got the right one. It doesn't look like I have. I'm going to come back. I'll find that one for you. But it's the word that is um, redeemed, is the word that's used to describe what Christians are. This is a word that we don't maybe use too much at the moment, but think about if you are running behind on your bills and you've got a guitar in the corner of your cupboard that you haven't played for many years, or maybe it's a surfboard or a lawnmower, you take it to cash converters and they say, we'll give you a few bucks there to pay your bills. If you come back in a month, you can, ha you can repay and get your goods back. If you don't make it in time, we're going to sell it off um, and you lose your goods. And so they don't give you a lot of money, so they make money when they resell it. The only way to get the guitar, the surfboard or the lawnmower back is to redeem it, is to go back with the money and repurchase it. In this life of new hope, you are the guitar. You can't buy yourself back, you're stuck in cash converters. You are your surfboard, you're stuck in cash converters. Redemption, being redeemed or bought back is the work of God that He does and that's why the words praise be to God are used. He's the one who redeems us. So this is the origins of this good life that Peter is writing about. The last one that you'll see, and we've hit it already, is resurrection is weaved throughout this letter. This idea that Jesus has died and come back to life is integral to this letter and much of the New Testament, you'll find it over and over. We've already seen it in 1.4, that we're born again, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could look in 1.21, let's see if I've got the right verse this time, there I have. Through Him you believe in God, 
who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. The idea of resurrection, this miraculous thing has taken place. You can see it again later on in chapter 3, where it's the idea of in 3, 18 to 19, it is said of Jesus that he was put to death and made alive. And in 3.22, it explains that and says, salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want you to notice about what is the good life, well, it's a life that originates not of your power, it's the life of new hope through a new birth given to you from God. The second thing I want to talk about very briefly is the idea of false hope. Um, False hope can be devastating, can have long-term consequences. 54 years ago, in 1967, Dr James Bedford is a psychology professor, University of California. He passed away due to kidney cancer at age 73. What Mr Bedford is known for most is that on this date, he became the first person cryonically preserved, frozen in time. Thanks to the Life Extension Society, his body is still being preserved. And according to the latest information, he's still available and viable for future use to the scientific community. Here we have a story of hope. Someone in the deep freeze. Someone who fears power outages, who hates the Marvel character Thor. Just my dad joke for the day. Um, but this hope of defeating death, we've got a Marvel here, doesn't mind, and he's a dad too, so he's laughing. Uh, this hope of defeating death is based on unknown science, isn't it? It's hope in something not yet seen. There's no evidence at this stage we'll ever be able to revive someone after cryogenic freezing. The good news in this hope, though, for you today is if you want to join in, you can, because just last year, in May 2020, there were 27 founding members, they all contributed 50 grand a pop, and they built the Southern Cryogenics Warehouse in the New South Wales town of Holbrook. And according to the Seven News article I read, you can too join now, you're a bit late, so you have to pay 150000 if you want to join the post-death deep freeze. There you go. That's hope, isn't it? It's a form of hope. We're not sure what will happen to us. We're concerned about our legacy, what happens to us in the future, beyond when we die. This is one way to address that. I suggest to you it's a false hope. I don't think science will ever get to the point where we revive frozen bodies. There was a recent study that much money was spent on And the sad news is, after spending all that money and all that medical expertise, they discovered our chances for a longer life aren't looking that great. We've sort of hit peak with medicine, the way that our bodies are structured. So living for 200 years or 300 years looks like it's not going to happen. Someone was hoping for hope there as well. Sometimes we cling to these hopes Other times we try and deal with them, don't we, when we've got false hope. We have this nagging feeling things aren't right and the hopes that we have for the good life, they've got holes in those buckets. And this, I I suggest the old hope, this uh, false hope is manifested in a few different ways. I think we could be the escape artist, we could be the control freak or the reminiscent whiner, that's what I've called them. The escape artist is the... um, what used to be hashtag YOLO, that's so old now, but it's that idea, you only live once, get on with it. Let's travel, let's get into extreme sports. Or the escape artist might be the bunker down and watch Netflix to keel over type person. 
you might notice some of those tendencies in yourself. The control freak tries to fight this nagging feeling of false hope by micromanaging every detail of life. If I bring more structure and order to my life, I'll feel better about my purpose. I can control what I can control, so I'm going to work very hard at controlling that. The reminiscent whiner, the old days were better. We're just going to reflect on the old days and wish they'd come back and in some way try and drag that to the future. There's a few ways we try and deal with false hope. And depending on your position in life, the way that you cope with false hope affects different numbers of people. If you are one of these people and you are single, your impact is fairly small. If you're a parent and you're a micromanager, that starts to affect your kids, doesn't it? If you're a premier, for example, I shouldn't probably go there, but that can affect you as well if you fit one of these categories. So this can have a big impact on how your life plays out. Your version of the good life is affected by your hope. So we've seen that the good life that Peter writes about starts with the power of God to transform us, to bring us new life through the resurrection. There's a danger in false hope because we're not sure how it will end up. But what we also see here in what is the good life is that it is imperishable, to use the words of Peter here. If you flip back with me to 1 Peter 1, 4, where we were, this inheritance promised to us is something that can never perish, spoil or fade and is kept in heaven for us. We are taking part in something in this good life that Peter espouses to us is a life of certainty, even in the midst of uncertainty right now. This is the difference with Christianity, with faith in Jesus. The basis for this hope, as we've already seen, is that historic resurrection of Jesus. Without that, the faith in Jesus is meaningless and powerless. But Jesus' act of dying and rising to life That's what puts flesh on the bones of our hope like nothing else can. And we see, even in our most testing moments, Peter writes about these and says, these are the training grounds for which deeper faith in God is developed. Because this letter was written to people experiencing tough times. Peter explains in chapter 1, verse 8, though you've seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That sounds like your best life, doesn't it? The good life. Why? For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the hope that defies current opposition and circumstances, that defies hard times and persecution. Rico Tice puts it, very nicely this way. Christianity is about real hope, a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about our present. That is the good life. We move to the next question, that's the what, let's move to the why the good life. You're thinking, okay, there's some compelling things about that, I certainly can't resurrect myself, but why live the good life? Well, You jump to chapter 2 and verse 2 and you're going to see an interesting word used. I'll read verse 1 as well. Therefore, because of these things, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Might be the micromanager there in us. But, in verse 2, like newborn babies, babies crave pure spiritual milk so that 
by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Why do we live the good life? Because our tastes have changed. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, that is the explanation given. That's why we put away the YOLOer in us and the micromanager, because we've tasted something different that was given to us supernaturally if we've taken part in this faith in Jesus and the new life he gives. Deep change happens in people when their old habits and patterns become distasteful to them. That's true in many areas of life, isn't it? It happens with health transformations, weight loss transformations. People have a moment of realisation they're not where they should be when they see a family photo at Christmas time. They reflect back on it or a video from an event or they, they go to an obstacle course and realise they used to be able to climb that rope thing but now they were very ground-based uh, ground and couldn't get off the earth. So there's this moment of realisation but the difference with the Christian message is and the difference with the Dave Goggins method is you do need that deep moment of reflection but you also need to realise it's not you that's going to cause the change. You need to have your taste changed so that you see the Lord is good. And in this same way, that's the reason we live the good life if we've been transformed. We've started to taste more and more that God's way of living is much more attractive and tasteful than the way we used to manage our hopes. I liken it to a cake. I've had this thought come to me as I was pondering life. This is how deep I get. But it's like a cake, isn't it? And, and the old way of doing life when you're a Christian, I think, is a bit like a mouldy cake. That's how you used to do things. But sometimes mouldy cakes have lovely icing. You know, they might have a picture of cake with lovely icing. It's got those silver balls on when you're a fancy cake decorator. And so there's a temptation to have a piece of rubbish cake, isn't there? Because it looks nice. It's temptation, there's short-term benefit and gain. But when your tastes change, you realise when I slice into that cake, I can play it forward and it's not going to end well. That's what happens when our perspective is changed by God. We no longer see the value in acting as the escape artist, the control freak or the whiner. We've tasted a better way through what God has given us, the goodness of the Lord. Read your Psalms in the middle of the book. And you'll find, taste and see that the Lord is good, comes up many times. Experience for yourself. And what Jesus does in dying and rising for us is demonstrate a better way. That's part of what we've tasted. Jesus wasn't micromanaging. He gave over, willingly, his life for people to put him to death. And he says, I have the power to take it up and put it down. I'm the one in control here, but I willingly lay it down. That's part of the taste of the new life that we've experienced. So we've had our taste change, but we've also had our relationship change if you've taken part in this entry into the good life that Peter talks about. If we were to look in um, 1 Peter 2.17, I think it is. Sorry, that's, I've sort of shot myself in the foot without my slides here. So um, let me just quickly find it for you. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Apologies. There you go. So it's in uh, chapter 1 still. So chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 says your relationship has changed. Actually, I'll start with 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Right there we see two words that are really important to what has changed. Children and father. We are now in a relationship, brought into that, if we're trusting in Jesus, through what he has done for us, so that we now call him father. We are now acting as his children. And just like when you're part of a family, you start to express the values that are important to that family group. That's what God's calling you. Be holy, because that's the family value. Be different. Do things in a way that reflect me. And we're going to see soon how this applies in the workplace. The other thing that changes is the permanence of our hope. So we've seen that the reason we are compelled and see the purpose in why live the good life, taste change, relationship change, but a change in permanence. God now has called us to be something different. We're called to be God's building and God's structure. And if you were to look in chapter 2 there, flip over, and it says, as you come to him, in 2 verse 4, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, so that's the way we come, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you jump down further in verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are part of something more permanent than ever. You're part of God's mission to the world to declare his praise. To demonstrate that God is calling you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You now have new purpose and you now have a new motivation for that purpose. So why live the good life? Because our tastes have changed, we've tasted the goodness of the Lord. Because our relationships have changed, we now get to call the Creator, we get to call Him Father. And because now our hopes for the future have changed, we're part of something permanent. We're part of God's building, the people who call Him Father. I like the way that C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God is not merely good, but goodness. Goodness is not merely divine, but God. Just like God says, or John actually writes this, God is love. God is the essence of goodness. If you want to know what goodness is, look to God. And C.S. Lewis says that, well, God is not merely good, but goodness. So that's the why. We've seen the what it is and how we arrived. We've seen the why, but now we look about well, how do I live this out? Does Peter say anything about how this practically works for my life? How do I make it take shape? And yes, he does. And the question for us this morning is how does that take place in my workplace? And some of you might be tempted to switch off when I say workplace, but I need to remind you that whether you're paid or unpaid, we're all supposed to be taking part in work. Did you know you even work when you have fun? How many people like to garden on their days off? Are there any amongst There's a few amongst us. And there are other things that would be classified as work we do for recreation. How many people work um, in some part of their life as unpaid work? Are there any amongst us? Yes, there's volunteers, there's mums and dads. You know, it is, I'm not trying to depress you, but work is a big part of your life. 
you thought it was only nine till five if that's for your job, but um, you come to realise work is there in all of life. And it's not a depressing story. We don't have time today, but Lawson drew on it. God is the author of work. God is a worker. Look in Genesis, God creates and what does he do on the seventh day? He looks at his work and says, this is fantastic. I love what I've done. I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. I got to do that in a small part yesterday. My mum has a um, a chair that she sits outside on, we gave it to her for a birthday and she can sit under a gum tree in her backyard but it's a very slopey block and she had it propped up on these four pavers and it looked like you could go down the hill at any moment and I was just inspired in the moment as is my work style, I'm a bit ADHD at times, I'm just thought I'm going to go get mum's shovel, I'm going to flatten this thing out and um, we were supposed to be going to my niece's birthday party and they're exhorting me to finish quickly. I'm like, no, we're not quite there yet. And it's my day off and I'm sweating and I'm getting things level, I'm enjoying it. And, and my brother Nigel was saying, look, it's working. I'm like, I'm like, it's not just about function, it's got to look right too. And um, that's what we do, isn't it? We bring work to all areas. And that was fun for me. If I had to do it, if someone told me to do it, like the kids this morning, I wouldn't want to do it. But I, I was enjoying being creative and expressing um, God's character. So how does it play out in the workplace, wherever that is, over the ironing board or with the clients in the boardroom or on the work site, how does it play out? Well, let me, let me apply some things that Peter says to our workplace. I would say the good life respects God-given structure. So if you were to look in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. There's this idea that the Christian life respects God-given structure. Do you know why that is? It's because as Jesus demonstrated by coming to earth and living and dying for us, Christianity is not a top-down system, it doesn't work that way. Christianity is a grassroots faith that grows from the heart and expresses outwards and it affects all areas of society. If you try and impose it from the top, you get lots of rule keepers and you get lots of tut-tutters and it doesn't work. Jesus demonstrates we are to start at the grassroots level and show our faith in God by living in line with what society has given us in terms of structure. How does this apply to the workplace? It means that you can still complain about your boss, but it means you don't do it in the lunchroom, you follow proper process and you follow the channels when there's been a grievance so that it can be resolved properly and you don't talk to people who don't need it, you follow the structure. I'm sure there are other examples you could respect the chain of command in your workplace, even when you think they're making the wrong decision. And once again, there might be a channel in which you can start that conversation, but you respect the channel in the workplace that God has given those structures. So that's one way that Peter says Christians reflect that faith in the grassroots nature of Christianity, that as it comes out of your heart into your life, it's going to affect real things around you and that's the best way for it to spread. We'll also see that the good life is more than talk. Sometimes we get tempted, you know, I'm doing a lot of talking right now. This is not all the good life is, it's much more than talk. So if you turn with me to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there's some real practical reflections here. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. I put it to you this morning, and you can disagree, but I think we're all a bit like wives in the workplace, in that it's a long-term relationship generally, isn't it? It's not one you can just constantly go around 
haranguing and harassing the people in your workplace because there's things to get done, same in the household. There's things that need to happen to make life go on. And so I put it to you that you can win them without words in the same way the wife is called to win a husband in the workplace, in that your activity, your behaviour, your motives express your faith. And so the way you go about things, much like Rachel shared about, the how we do things is so important because it reflects our version of the good life that Jesus has given us. So win them without words, that's my advice to you. Think of it a long-term relational setting, because that's what it is. You'll get some very strange looks if you go in the lunchroom and you set up a soapbox and you get your Bible out in the middle and you start street preaching, it's the wrong context. We see that context in the Bible where that happens, where Paul goes and debates the people at the Oropagus and talks to the philosophers, that can happen too. But in the workplace, that's generally not where that happens. And so you need to live in line with the structure of your scene, but demonstrate it's more than just talk in that long-term setting. There's something to think about. Many of the stories we hear through Engage and we're very excited about is when people say, I've been sharing the back of an ambulance with one guy, we teamed up for a long time and conversations have started because of the way we do things, the way I do things is prompted conversation. That's what excites us, it's a demonstration of these long-term relationships we forge in the workplace where we can demonstrate this principle, win them without words. How else might I live the good life in the workplace? Well, let me just re-stress that the good life is powered by love. You see this theme crop up over and over again. You could see in chapter 1, verse 22, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, powered by love. Finally, it says in 3.8, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, powered by love. 4.8 says this, above all, love each other deeply. There it is again, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love generally means sacrifice, doesn't it? There's a cost involved. Let me give you a few ideas for the workplace and this is hard to do. And for you, maybe it's you work from home, so maybe it's your neighbours that are going to be this. Maybe it's going to be the people in the mums group. Maybe it's going to be people on the job site as you start to build. But let me give you a few ideas. The good life is willing to integrate your work people with your personal people. So you don't build a wall and say, I'm going to be very private about what happens with my friends and my family. I'm going to invite other people into my life. And so when you have a significant event, you might invite your work friends along and you might participate in that with them to show that all of life is important to God and I'm going to share it with everyone as best I can. I'm going to make sacrifice and bring them into my group. I'm going to forego just the comfortable conversation because sometimes when we bring new people in, it is more difficult. There's a little bit of a you know, sticking point on conversation as you get to know each other. But it might mean you invite a, a colleague on a, um, on a bushwalk, if that's your thing, or a board games night or a barbecue. They were unintentional, all B words that was not meant. Or some, many people like to go to the gym with their colleagues. Um, as someone said... Um, a good mate of mine, I had him on the podcast recently, he said, 
you know, it builds trust when your workmates are spotting you on a bench press personal best effort, you know? It's, you don't get that in the workplace. You could die under that. Um, so, the good life is powered by love and love integrates other people into our spaces we wouldn't normally want them because we're willing to sacrifice. So, there's a few ways. There's one more I've got for you, the last one today. The good life is prepared to talk. So, we saw we we're happy to win them without words, but we know that words are very important. The good life is prepared to talk. Have a look in chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. The good life is prepared to talk. I like, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Sam Chan on our tendency to either be overactors or over-talkers. You can work out for yourself which category you fit into. But Sam Chan writes a book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, something we all need. God has blessed us with great friends. We should enjoy our friends just for who they are, a good gift from God to enjoy, regardless of whether we get to tell them about Jesus. But at the same time, we should make the most of every opportunity God has given us to tell our friends about Jesus. If I only see the friendship as a means to tell them about Jesus, then I'm over-functioning. I'm trying to make something happen that might not be there and I'm using them as a means toward an end. On the other hand, if I don't try to tell them about Jesus, I'm under-functioning. There'll be times when I could have and should have tried to tell them about Jesus. I hope that spurs some thought about the good life is ready to talk. Are you over-functioning or under-functioning if you're living the good life? Let me leave you, before we go into a time of prayer, with Rico Tice's quote from earlier. Christianity is about real hope, a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about our present. And the questions that leaves us with are, have we tasted and seen the Lord is good and had Him bring us new life? The second question is, are you taking that good life with you everywhere? onto the building site, into the office or into the kitchen. What I've asked now as a closing thing to do is just that we might have a time of prayer for our workplaces and I've asked several people to come and pray for specific um, industry groups and activities that are represented amongst us today. I've done a bit of a survey and hopefully I've been accurate but we're not going to pray for people by name, we're going to pray for workplaces and I've asked them to think about how they might pray for these workplaces. So I'm going to invite those people up. There should be four of them and Lawson's got a microphone here. And we'll line them up in order that we're going to get them to pray because once I hand over, we'll just close our eyes and pray. I'll pray at the end just to close. Um, I do apologise if, if you're not well represented in the prayers. It's very hard to cover everyone this time without going for two hours in prayer. But we're just going to spend a few minutes as each one prays. You're going to get, she's getting very nervous already. She's going down that way. As long as she doesn't head out the door, I'm happy. Um, 
Yeah, so what I did, I sent them a few questions just to prep them, and they've done some of their own thinking, and then I'm just going to let them rip, we're just going to pray. They'll, as they pray, I assume they'll just talk about, they'll pray to God about the industry they're referring to, and then I'll wrap up at the very end with a final prayer. So thank you, Becky, if you can start, and then just work your way along. Yeah, let's pray. Father, um, we're so thankful that you've created us all differently, you've wired us all differently, um, that each of us um, are good at things and love things that are part of who you are. Um, we're thankful that you've created work, uh, that you show that you found satisfaction in your work, um, that it was something that was good, um, and that you've given us ways to uh, contribute to society, um, to families, to organisations like your church, Father. Um, and we know that while work is created as good, um, and it is a good thing that we can participate in, that we work within broken systems. Um, we know that um, leadership structures are often not um, according to the same values that are of your kingdom, um, that they can often be inverted and there are behaviours and characteristics and things that are praised and seen as good that we know not to be good. So, Father, we just pray for our leaders that um, you would help us to not follow the ways of the world, Father, but to think about your ways um, and to be bold in living those values even when they may not give us success, um, but we know them to be right. So we pray that you would help us to have integrity in our work, um, that we'll be bold in living in ways that we know would please you um, and that in those ways, Father, we would um, people would see that there is something different, that we would stand out, that we wouldn't live according to the patterns of the world, Father, but that we would be set apart. Um, and that through that obedience, people would be curious, um, that our hope would be something that is real, um, and that they, they would see something as different, Father, and we'd have opportunities to talk about the reason that um, we do things differently. It's because we believe, um, we believe something different to the way that the world believes. Um, Father, we also pray that you would help us to be bold in sharing our lives. Um, often we may be the only person in a workplace that knows you, um, and we pray that we wouldn't get distracted just with the everyday tasks that we're doing, Father, but that we would see the people around us, um, that we would invest in relationships, um, that, as Darren said, we would sometimes sacrifice um, what we see as our personal life um, to reach out to the people within our workplaces, that our life would be truly integrated, um, that our faith would permeate everything, um, that you would help us to be people that um, are the same at church, at home, at work, um, and that you would just grow our faith by um, when we are obedient, Father, that you would help us to see the ways that you're working in the people around us, that people aren't as far from you as we perhaps think. Um, yeah, so Father, we just pray that you would help us um, to consider your ways, um, to be bold in sharing our lives, um, and that we would see um, people within our workplaces um, start to see who you are and come to know you. Amen. Father God, um, I just want to lift up to you this morning the education sector. Um, we're so thankful, Lord, for um, teachers, for lecturers, um, administrators, SSOs, um, all those people, Lord, who have a heart and a passion to teach and to care for young people. Um, Father, thank you for the many hours um, that they spend outside of work um, preparing um, and making sure that they give the best um, that they can to their students. Um, Lord, we do pray for the challenges that 
um, the education sector faces at the moment for the many who have been online learning for such a long time, um, for the teachers who are trying to love from a distance and to teach from a distance. We think of students, Lord, who are um, struggling academically and mentally and relationally, Lord, um, through um, this pandemic. But Lord, we just ask um, that as Christian educators, you would provide opportunities um, for all who work in the education sector, Lord, to really love those around them, um, to be salt and light, to be an ear that listens and a heart that cares. Um, and so through those opportunities, I pray that um, we would be able to speak Jesus' name um, and in those settings where that is difficult, um, that we would be able to be his hands and feet and live out his love in a way um, that causes those around us to question and to ask about the hope that we have. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity um, and the blessing that it is to work with young people. Amen. Uh, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I want to pray for the construction industry this morning. Um, Lord, it's renowned to be a place where your presence is often forgotten, um, many much malicious behaviour and, and, and slander. And Lord, being a Christian in this environment is, is, a, is a really tough thing. So I want to pray for all your chosen children in this industry. I pray that you'll give us boldness and, and confidence and assurance to know that you're with us all the time, Lord. And I pray that um, in the many opportunities that we do get, Lord, because we stick out like a sore thumb, I pray that you'd um, give us the confidence to share your word in those opportunities and, and above all, just act and say uh, in a way that glorifies you so that people may see our good work and glorify you on the day of your return, Lord Jesus. Yes, Father, we just lift up the health um, sector for you. Uh, and I'm reminded in your word of 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, um, 3 to 5. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God from just as you share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And Father, we just pray for the healthcare services. We thank you that you're so very present within us at work, working through your children and behind the scenes to help the people in the world. You are the God of all comfort and we thank you that we're able to share this as your co-workers helping, caring and showing compassion to people in need. You know the stresses and the demands of staff shortages, burnouts. Please encourage them, Lord, to, when they feel worn out, renew their strength. When they're feeling overwhelmed, give them rest for those who need it and remind them of your promises. I pray for your, pre your presence, Lord, that will be made known through through us each and every day. May your kingdom come in the leadership of our health services and please give them wisdom and guide them in all that they do. And may we bless your holy name in all we do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, we just thank you 
as we've said this morning, for your gift of work, because you are a worker, we see that in creation, we see that in the work of Jesus. We thank you, this is a chance to reflect your character, that we can be creative, we can be caring, we can demonstrate passion for what we do. So we thank you this morning for everyone represented here and we can't pray for each sector, but we, we even pray for those we often overlook as, as workers, those who are stay-at-home mums, those who are students, those who are retired and volunteering. We lift those up to you that they would not lose sight of your view of work as they labour unrewarded financially in that sense, but they would see the value in what they do. They'd see it as a chance to reflect the love that you have for people. We pray this Sunday might be a reset on our thinking, if we need it, on what work means and how it fits into our life and how faith must affect every area of life, our faith in you. We ask that you would do this work in the change of our hearts. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.